Good to be with you. Hope you had a great Christmas. We are back in the book of Hebrews after a few three or four week break from Hebrews and we come upon a text we might think, what does this passage, what relevance does this have for us in the 20th century, 21st century, 21st century? Um, We live in a time of smartphones and self-driving cars and stem cell research and air travel and artificial intelligence and apps for almost anything under the sun. What does a passage about priests and blood sacrifices and tabernacle have to do with us? Not only that, we have companies like Apple and Google and Amazon that make life so much better for us and easier for us in so many regards. How does this passage help us? Does it? Does it actually help us? And not only that, but we we live with more relative freedom than any other people on planet Earth ever has. Freedom to travel, freedom to see the world, freedom to start a business, freedom to buy what we want and when we want and to go where we want, when we want, pretty much. How does a text like this help us experience freedom that we don't already have? What relevance does it have for us? Now, some might say, I hope no one here, but some might say it has no relevance for us. None at all. Of course, that would be wrong. For all the advances we have, medical, technological, and so forth, that solve so many problems for us and make life so much better in so many ways, and for all the relative but real freedoms we enjoy. I mean, who wants to go back to a time where you couldn't travel by an airplane? to go 6,000 across the sea, (laughs) right? All the relative but real freedoms we enjoy, these things cannot touch what we need most. They can't solve our most fundamental dilemma. And this is true whether you lived at the time of the first century when when the book of Hebrews was written or whether you live today. It's true whether you're a male or a female, young, old, rich, poor, whether you live in an advanced country like America or a very, very underdeveloped country like Mozambique. And what is that dilemma that we need solved? What is the problem that all of us face that this text addresses? It's this. How do people with a stained conscience relate with God? How do people with a defiled, dirty, stained conscience draw near to the God who made them and for whom they exist? How do we do that? That's what this passage is about. We were made for God and yet our conscience condemns us and often makes us feel unacceptable to God and leaves us alienated from God, separated from God. I wonder how many people here have ever thought in your mind, in your own mind, in the quietness of your own mind, oh, what I wouldn't give for a deep and real sense of God's full acceptance. Or what I wouldn't give to know that I am his and he is mine to really know that. Not to hear about it, but to really know that. Or what I wouldn't give to know the felt love and grace of God. 
Well, the defiled, stained conscience stands in the way. It's important we understand what the conscience is. The word conscience is made up of two words. The word science, which means the knowledge of, and the, and the prefix con, which means inner or internal or self. So the word conscience just basically means a self-knowledge or an internal knowledge. But when we speak of conscience biblically, it means an internal knowledge of right and wrong, of good and evil, and as it pertains to our own actions. It's something that God has put in every single person. He's given every single person a conscience. Romans chapter 2 says that even non-Jewish people or Gentiles, those that didn't receive the law directly, even they have the work of the law written on their hearts and their conscience does one of two things. It accuses them or excuses them. It accuses them of behavior, bad behavior, or it exonerates them of praiseworthy behavior. God has put the conscience in every single person. Richard Sibbs, who was a 17th century pastor from England, he pictured the conscience as, he described it this way, as God's court within. And he said that the, the, the conscience is God's court within. It has a recorder. It has a witness, it has an accuser, and it has a judge. It has a recorder. The conscience records. It keeps track of things that we do or things we don't do that we should. It keeps track of good and bad things, not just just negative things, but keeps track of the things that we do. It also, the conscience serves as a witness. It bears witness to what we do. It serves as an accuser. Right? Like I already mentioned from Romans 2, it accuses or excuses us. And it serves as a judge. The conscience passes judgment on what we have or have not done. And it's crucial that, this is crucial for our understanding because it has a lot to do with how we relate with God. Right? How we live before God. This text is concerned about you and I living before God, serving God, worshiping God with a clean conscience. We all live before God with a conscience. The question is, is it cleansed? Is it clean? Is it purified? Is it washed? That's the question. The aim of this text is that you and I would have a clean conscience in order to live before God and serve him and worship him in a way that pleases him. In verse 4, I get that from verse 14. Everything's aiming toward verse 14. That's what all of the the first 10 verses talk about, the old covenant and the insufficiency of the old covenant to deal with our most fundamental problem, dilemma, And the last four verses deal with the solution. In verse 14, it says that that through Christ, our conscience can be cleansed to serve the living God or purified to serve the living God. The word serve could be translated worship. The idea is drawing near to God to worship and serve him. It's not just singing songs. It certainly includes that. But it is a life of worship and service to God, it's living all of life before the face of God. 
Now, human beings have set out to deal with the problem of a stained conscience in a number of ways. And the author of of the book of Hebrews, he's writing this book to Hebrew Christians, to Jewish Christians, those who have, have been converted from Judaism to Christ. And because of persecution, uh, you know, hot persecution, like, like people being put in prison, and soft persecution, like ostracism from their family and society, they are tempted to go back to Judaism. And the author wants to tell them, if you go back, just know what you're going back to. There's nothing there for you. There's no life there. That's what he's getting at. And what he's saying is that the old covenant could, cannot cleanse the conscience. The author wants them to know there's nothing to go back to. The priests with their daily rituals and washings, the high priest with his once for all blood sacrifice on the day of atonement could not solve the problem of a condemned conscience before God. And what he wants to show them is that the Old Testament is severely limited. It's limited in its access to God and it's limited in its effectiveness to deal with a defiled conscience. First access, verse seven says that only one person, one person can come into the presence of God and that one person only one day a year, right? There was the the tabernacle, there was the outer courts, there was the inner, excuse me, there was the the holy place where the priests, plural, would go in and do their daily rituals and washings. And then there was the most holy place behind the veil where only one person could go and he could go once a year and he better come with blood, right? To sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. I mean, this was a serious thing. Nobody, nobody waltzed into the Holy of Holies. Let me see what's behind that curtain there. They'd be struck dead. Okay, you don't do that. I've heard anyways, I don't know, I can't remember where I heard this, that the, the high priest would have a rope tied around his ankle in case he fell over and died behind the curtain so that people could pull him out because nobody went behind the curtain unless you were the high priest and it was the day of atonement. So under the old covenant, the the access to God was severely limited, namely one person, one day a year. But it also, the old covenant was also severely limited in how it dealt with sin. Verse seven says that the day of atonement, the blood sacrifice was only for unintentional sins. Or I think uh, the NIV that Mike read from said, sins of ignorance, So the conclusion we see in verses 9 and 10 is that all of this could not perfect or cleanse the conscience before God. It could not give relief to the conscience. It could not give confidence before God. It could not give access to God. In other words, the author's saying, you want to go back to that? There's nothing there. There's nothing there for you. It's a dead end. The old covenant could not clean the stained conscience. Now, you and I, nobody here probably is tempted to try an Old Testament sacrificial way of of appeasing 
our conscience. But we have other ways of trying to. We have other ways of trying to appease or deal with a conscience that hurts or that weighs upon us. And none of our lame attempts can cleanse the conscience either. I thought of a few that some of them I try sometimes. Sometimes to cleanse or to try to silence or appease our conscience, we simply make excuses. We blame shift. Our conscience accuses us and we, rather than owning it and dealing, dealing with it in the way that God prescribes, which we're going to get to later, we blame others. We say, well, I'm this way or I did this because so-and-so, because of my parents or because of my upbringing or because I didn't have this or that. We blame others or we blame circumstances or we blame obstacles or impediments or handicaps that we have. We blame shift. We make excuses. And when we do this, we only end up digging such a deep and narrow hole that only one person can fit in it, and it's us. We pushed everyone else away because it's all their fault. It's everyone's fault except mine. And of course, it doesn't cleanse our conscience. It doesn't help deal with a defiled conscience. Another way we try to deal with an unclean conscience is we, we, see, we overrule it by trying to convince people that evil is good and darkness is light. This is when we, or people, seek to make sin seem virtuous. Isaiah said there's going to be a time coming. We live in it. I mean, it's not like we're the only age that has, but where people are going to say light is darkness and darkness is light and good is evil and evil is good. And why do people do that? God has written his conscience on our hearts or he's written his law on our hearts. He's given us a conscience. We know that certain things are evil. Why do, why do people do that? Well, only one of two reasons. Either because their conscience is seared completely because of doing such violence to it over such a period of time, or their conscience hurts so much that they need to try to prove that what they're doing is actually good and getting other people to celebrate it as well. We see that in Romans 1. It says there are people who not only not only do the same sinful things, but they give hearty approval to others who do. They cheer other people on. Trying to overrule the conscience cannot solve the problem and ultimately will end in the searing of the conscience. We must not try that. Another way we try to deal with a, 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 an unclean conscience is we seek to silence it. We do this busyness, entertainment, amusement, every waking moment, consciously or subconsciously, muting the conscience. How comfortable are you 
in a silent room without any distractions. <laughs> there was a book written in 1985 by a guy named Neil Postman. I never read the book, but I've heard it referred to several times. I probably should. And the book is called Amusing Ourselves to Death, written in 1985. <laughs> 35 years ago. <laughs> what was that? Ancient. Where are we at 35 years later? Much further down the road. Silencing the conscience doesn't work. We also can try another thing. We can try to suppress it. The conscience can be suppressed through self-esteem and self-flattery as though that is the end of all things. Rather than hearing the word of God and his diagnosis of us and our need and his remedy for us, we turn to self-help gurus, even supposed Christian ones, who tell us that we really are good people and that we just need to have a positive self-image. But it's not a negative self-image that our conscience needs to be purified from. It's dead works. That's what verse 14 says. It's not bad thoughts about yourself. It is sinful works that our conscience needs to be cleansed from. So suppressing the conscience may succeed for a short time, but, but it'll end up just leading to disillusionment. And the last one I thought of, last attempt we, last thing or way we attempt to, or to deal with an unclean conscience is we just try harder. We just try to do better, harder. I know that I, I, I don't measure up to God's standards and I, I fall short and I do things I shouldn't do. If I can just have my good deeds outweigh my negative ones, then, then that will help my conscience. Of course, it doesn't work. It may work for a short time, but it ends in burnout. Just burnout. And when we seek to solve the problem of a stained conscience in these ways, it keeps us from honestly walking with God. Can I tell you, it keeps us from God. No matter how religious and spiritual it may feel, it keeps us from God. Remember, the aim of a cleansed conscience is to serve and worship the living God. That's the aim of it. There's only one thing that can answer decisively our accusing, stained conscience. There's only one thing, only one thing that can cleanse the conscience. It's the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. We sang about it. Nothing but the blood. That's the only thing. Only through the blood of Jesus can you and I be ruthlessly honest, face down our conscience, and draw near to God with confidence. <laughs> Not, only the blood of Jesus can help us to do this, to be totally honest about where we fall short, totally honest with our conscience and and face it and draw near with confidence and boldness to God. It's through the blood of Christ and through the blood of Christ alone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can do this. Only when we turn away from all other inadequate, pathetic measures and dead ends 
and turn to the one way to have our conscience purified through the blood of Christ. Only then will we be free to serve and worship the living God. Only then will we freely serve and worship the living God. Verses 11 to 14 are amazing. And they show us what God has done through Christ to help us. In verses 11 and 12, we see the the completeness or the finality of Christ's death for us. It's complete. It's final. Here's what it says. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The key phrase is once for all. Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, accomplished something once for all. It's complete. It's final. I remember not not too long ago, maybe about a year or so ago, I was having a a conversation with a a cousin of mine who's a fairly devout Roman Catholic. And she was telling me just very candidly, she says, you know, I've thought about starting, you know, becoming a Protestant. The only thing I can't get past or the only reason I'm still drawn to the Catholic Church is because of the Eucharist, because of that part of the, the Mass where the priest prays the prayer of consecration and supposedly brings Jesus down again as a sacrifice again and again. And I I pointed out to her from Hebrews, the once for all sacrifice. And I said to her, I'm not gonna say her name, I said, cousin, how do you have peace with God? if you're not sure that the, sa- the sacrifice of Christ is final and complete. She said, well, I don't know. It's just more of a feeling that I get when I go to church. It's like, okay. Once for all, it's complete. It's done. This is in comparison with the old covenant practices. There there were the daily washings by the priests in the holy place. They would go in there every day and do washings and rituals and sacrifices and offerings. And then there was the once a year sacrifice on the day of atonement where the high priest would go behind the curtain with the blood of a sacrifice and do that once a year. But here's the thing, their work never ended. It was never done. The high priest sacrifice on the Day of Atonement could not ever be final. It was never done. Jesus' cross work is once for all. And I love how it says he entered into the holy place once for all. Meaning he entered into the presence of the Father. Meaning the Father is satisfied once for all. And I love how it says that he, he presented himself Securing an eternal redemption. This eternal redemption he secured once for all. Jesus entered in the presence of God 
for us on our behalf once for all. He has secured our redemption once for all. It is finished. It's done. Praise his name. We have a perfect Savior. We said in in, in Hebrews chapter 7, he is one who is able to save, you know what it says? To the uttermost. Not most of the way. My goodness, if he saved 99% of the way, I would blow it. And you would too. He is able to save perfectly, forever, to the uttermost. His sacrifice is once for all. And then verses 13 and 14, we see the sufficiency of Christ's death, which is similar but slightly different. The sufficiency of Christ's death for us. It benefits us and it is sufficient to benefit us fully. Here's what it says. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh or ceremonially sanctify or purify, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The author is arguing from the lesser to the greater. The blood, the, the blood offerings under the old covenant could make someone clean in a particular way. Outward ceremonial cleanliness. And if it can do that, how much more can the blood of Christ do? The old covenant sacrifices had ceremonial power. The greater sacrifice of Christ has the power to take away our guilt from our conscience. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross is fully loaded and completely sufficient. And all of this, the completeness of Christ's death and the sufficiency of Christ's death is to, is aimed at something and is to purify our conscience so that we can serve the living God to purify our conscience so that we can serve the living God. Notice, it's not that we, um, in our own strength, seek to purify our own conscience. It is that Christ purifies our conscience, and then we serve God. We don't serve God in order to get a cleansed conscience. He cleans our conscience, and then we serve him. And that's the only way that we can. Any other kind of service to God, so-called service to God, is unacceptable to him. We come to him through the work of Christ, and serve him. But how does this work? How does it work? How does, how does what Jesus did, the finality of his death, 
to give us access to God, the sufficiency of his death to completely cleanse our conscience. How does this work? How do we, how do we get this? How does this become ours? And there's only one way. It's by looking to Christ and the completeness of his death and the sufficiency of his death and decidedly not looking to anything else. It's looking to Christ alone. It is not Christ and our little sacrifices we do for him that give us access to God and make us clean before God. It is Jesus Christ alone. And I would add, I would add this, it is not looking to the things that Jesus gives us, but to Christ himself. Jesus is my acceptance with God. He doesn't merely give me acceptance, he is my acceptance. He is my cleansing, he is my righteousness, he is my peace, he is my redemption, he is my life. It all comes through him. We sang it earlier. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Every other physician is a fraud. Only Christ can make us whole again. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus does all of this for me. And Jesus is all of this for me. When you come to God this way, trusting in Christ's blood, which accomplished such full access to God once for all, and such deep cleansing for your conscience, you know what happens? You want to serve him. You want to. Your heart melts underneath the flow of Christ's blood and you want to serve him. You don't, it's not, you don't do it because you have to or because you should. You do it because you want to, because you love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will do what I say if you love me. You and I will want to worship and serve God. So we do not serve in order to get a clean conscience. We get a clean conscience freely through the blood of Jesus in order to serve the living God. Wouldn't it be great to live there? I mean, wouldn't it be great to, to live where you recognize you live under the influence of the finality of Christ's death and the sufficiency of Christ's death and what it does to warm and melt your heart so that you live from this place of full and free acceptance, cleansed conscience before God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live there? Well, I want to help this morning as we close. Okay, we're, we're right on the doorsteps of 2020. Okay, it's, a, it's a time when 
some of us, many of us, maybe everyone here starts thinking about things like resolutions. And I don't want this to be like a normal resolution, like do this, this, and this, but kind of like that. We're, we're close to the beginning of a new year, and so what a great time to think about how 2020 is going to be a year in which we boast in the blood of Jesus. I mean, Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross. I mean, Paul was serious about this. <laughs> far be it for me to boast. 1 Corinthians 1, he says, if anyone's going to boast, let him boast in the Lord. You and I boast, we all boast about something. How about this year we boast in the Lord? So I, I have eight things I want to challenge and encourage you to practice. So just to start practicing in 2020. Number one, when you rise every morning, look to the mercy of God in the blood of Jesus. One thing I used to do, and I've kind of gotten out of the habit of it, almost every morning, I get out of bed, wipe my eyes, and I would say, Lord, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's my only hope today. Do that. In the morning, look to Jesus. Look to Christ every day and say this. In the morning, first thing in the morning, today, say, Jesus, you are my righteousness and my hope and my peace. Jesus, you are my acceptance with God the Father. There's no greater righteousness. He has impeccable righteousness. There's no greater hope. It's, un, it's unshakable. There's no greater peace that we can have with God than when it's grounded in Christ and his blood and cross. And if, we have, if Christ is our acceptance with God the Father, then we have full acceptance. It can't get stronger. Number two. This goes along with number one. I'm kind of stealing this from someone. A guy named Robert Murray McShane said something like this. I'm applying it slightly different. He says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. One of the shortest ways to get off track is to start looking at ourselves. And, we, and when we do this, we can fall, into, fall on, into a ditch on both sides of the road. We can either look at ourselves in self-admiration and self-adulation which leads to pride, or which is pride, or we can look at ourselves in despair and guilt. So look to Christ every day. Do things that are gonna remind you, make sticky notes in your car and your dashboard and in the bathroom, on the mirror and everywhere in your house and maybe in the office to remind you to look to Christ. Does anyone here like, you know, make notes to yourself, maybe on your phone now or something or reminders on your phone. Do you guys do that? Come on, raise your hand if you do that. I mean, lots of people here do. What about this? What about this? Remind yourself to look to Christ. I once heard somebody say that one of the most important words in the New Testament, you probably have heard me say this now a few times, one of the most important words in the New Testament is remember. Remember. Because we forget. 
Number three, when your conscience accuses you because you really have sinned, make a beeline to Jesus and claim his blood. Don't run from him, run to him. I once heard a story of a guy who had a dog, big dog, big German shepherd or something, and um, some friends were visiting and uh, the dad of the friends had their little seven-year-old boy run out to the car to grab something. The seven-year-old boy ran out the door and started running to the car and the, the dog had this low growl and started going after the boy. And the dog owner said, oh, no, no, it's okay, just walk, buddy. He doesn't like when people run away from him. I was like... God doesn't either. God doesn't either. Don't run away from him. Run to him. When your conscience accuses you, run to Christ. 1 John 2.1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a lawyer. We have someone who stands in the presence of the Father on our behalf, and we can run to Christ. Number four, when the accuser, the devil, throws his arrows at you, accusing you of real or imagined sins, past or present failures, respond to him like Martin Luther did. Here's what Martin Luther said. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Isn't that great? (laughs) I love that. I know that I deserve death and hell. Who cares? Christ and his blood. Not boasting in our sin, by no means. But we, des- we do deserve that. Or better than Luther, respond like Paul. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Number five, 2020, boasting in the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. Number five, when you pray, consciously draw near to God the Father through Jesus. Looking to Jesus and trusting in the sufficiency of his blood alone because the blood of Jesus alone gives you a backstage pass into God's presence. That's the only way. That's the only way. It's not because you feel extra spiritual right now or because you have obeyed God better than usual today or anything like that. It is through Christ alone. Number six, faithfully come to worship each week drawing near to God with the church, celebrating the blood of Jesus and our full and free acceptance with God through it. Our full and free acceptance, each one of us and together. 
And here's what I mean. Let, let's see, when you come celebrating the blood and death of Christ and, we, and you sing about it and I sing about it and more and more people come and we celebrate this together, it has this cascading effect. Like one little waterfall joining with another one, joining with another one and becoming this mighty waterfall of God's grace and love. Number seven, do all that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think that's Colossians 3.17. In other words, do all that you do in reliance upon the blood and finished work of Christ and your acceptance with God through him. Whether what you're doing is work at the office or raising children shoveling the sidewalk or drinking a glass of coffee or cup of coffee. Do all that you do in the name of Jesus. Trusting in, banking on the finished work of Christ and your acceptance with God through him. John Bunyan was a 17th century Puritan. He said, Something like, I I wrote this down, I couldn't find it, it's in one of my books, but he said something like this, all obedience, all of your obedience and my obedience must be laid on the foundation of free pardon in the blood of Christ. All of our obedience must be laid on the foundation that we are fully and eternally forgiven in the blood of Jesus. We're not, we're not doing anything in order to earn from God. And number eight, ask the Lord for opportunities to gossip about the blood and cross of Christ to others. Ask him for opportunities to bring more and more people out of bondage to a defiled, stained conscience and into the life, freedom, and joy of serving and worshiping God with a clean conscience. Ask him, ask him daily. Lord, give me an opportunity just to to speak about Jesus to someone. This most amazing thing, and I need to practice this more, (laughs) so I'm preaching to myself, but I did this about a week and a half ago. I mean, just very decidedly, I got up in the morning, just my time before the Lord, I said, Lord, give me a chance to speak to someone about Christ today, Father, and and I had to take Sabrina's car to a body shop. There was a little accident at our home. Um, more drivers mean more. Anyways. Um, and um, I was waiting for the owner of the shop to come. And there was a man in the shop, just one man, small shop. Evan Moore gave me the name. It's just a small business. And, um, and he and I started talking. And, and he asked me what I did. And I told him I was a pastor here in Ankeny. He was on the north side of Des Moines. And he started asking me, he, he was from Iraq. He was, uh, he's been here for 10 years. He was actually a translator for the U.S. Army. And so in just conversation, he started asking me about some of the differences. He started asking me about Mary. <laughs> Apparently there are lots of Catholics in Iraq, or, or at least a decent-sized population of Catholics in Iraq. And so it was, it was that open door to talk to him about Christ as the one mediator between God and men. Not Mary, not any other saint, but Christ alone. Now, he didn't fall down on his knees and repent and believe in Jesus, but, but there was a seed planted 
and I'll get more opportunities with him. We should pray for opportunities like that. I don't do that as often as I should. And the Lord just plopped it in my lap. We should do that. Nothing but the blood. Christ's blood cleanses our conscience from guilt and condemnation to serve and worship God with joy and peace and hope and passion. And there's no, way, no better way to live. Amen? Why don't you stand with me?